the seller and buyer of goods can agree on whatever commercial terms they like. They can agree they can agree to the most outrageous things as long as it's legal they can agree on it. It is completely up to them to agree who covers insurance and freight, who bears the risk up to and from what point and who clears the goods through Australian customs and a range of other things. Of course they are bound to some rules and regulations but you know and the essence of it is they can agree on whatever they like. But if for every trade they negotiated every little detail again from scratch they wouldn't get anything done. And so international trade usually uses predefined commercial terms. And the most commonly used predefined commercial terms are the international commercial terms, in short, incoterms. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 139 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. So rather than negotiating every little detail, seller and buyer can just refer to a particular inco term and both parties know exactly what they are agreeing on. But why do we worry about inco terms when we talk about the GST status of a supply of goods going overseas? And the answer is that the terms of the trade will determine who exports the goods and hence whose supply is GST-free as an export. You already heard Simon Dorovich of ANA Tax Legal Consulting mentioning the incoterms in the last episode. But because they play such a crucial role in the GST status of a supply of goods going to an overseas buyer, I asked Simon to please tell us more. My first question to him is, who actually publishes the incoterms? It's published by the International Chamber of Commerce, and it goes back all the way to 1936. The most recent version was published in 2010, but they're working on a new version, and that's expected to come out next year in, in 2020. And it basically facilitates international trade by having its terms that buyers and sellers can agree to. Yes, and when you say they, they published a new version, who's they? So it's this body called the International Chamber of Commerce, headquartered in Paris. It's some form of non-governmental organisation. It supports the work of the UN and the WTO and its members all around most countries of the world involved in setting the rules and dispute resolution. first Inco terms that was published in 1936, the last one's in 2010, and the next one will be in 2020. And it just creates these set terms that set out what are the responsibilities of the buyer, what are the responsibilities of the seller, when do risks and responsibilities transfer. And because everybody's dealing with the same understanding, it helps facilitate trade without by avoiding disputes and having to every contract with people of different countries having to come up with new sets of terms and conditions. Where does the name Incoterms come from? Is it abbreviation? Is Inco an acronym? Not an acronym. It's short for International Commercial Terms.
the different kinds of Pinko terms and what they stand for and what it means. Uh, before we do that, let's just briefly go over why it's important in the context of GST. And that's for a supply of goods to be GST, under, GST free, sorry, I should say, and item one of the table in section 38 185. One of the conditions is that the supplier has to be the entity that exports the goods. And the INCO t- terms help us determine which is the party, either the supplier or, or the, the purchaser, that is considered to be the exporter. In the ATO's view that they set out in the GST ruling 2002-6, they say, putting aside the deeming rules of paragraph 3, you know, where the even if the supply isn't the exporter, they're, they're deemed to be the exporter. But putting that aside for the moment, the ATO says that the supplier is the entity that exports the goods, where either the supplier contracts at the supplier's own expense with an international carrier for the transportation of the goods to a destination outside Australia, or the supplier is responsible for delivering the goods to the operator of a ship or aircraft who, or that, has been engaged by another party to transport the goods to a destination outside Australia. Those are the two ways in which the supplier can be considered to be the exporter of the goods. So that's just good to keep in mind when we go through what the different INCO terms are. In most cases, it is the supplier that is the exporter, but in others, it's the buyer, and in some, it depends. So... One INCO term is FCA, and that that stands for for free carrier. And basically, in that situation, the seller is responsible for getting the goods to the buyer's carrier at an agreed location. And then when the buyer's carrier receives the goods, that's when the risks are transferred from the seller to the buyer. Now, under this FCA, it's the seller that's required to clear the goods for export. So in the ATO's view, The supplier is the exporter in this case, provided that the named place of the delivery is an international port or airport, and the carrier to whom the goods are delivered is the operator of a ship or aircraft. And the reason that the ATO gives is that under this FCA INCO term, provided those conditions are met, the supplier is responsible for delivering the goods to the operator of a ship or aircraft who or that has been engaged to carry them to an overseas destination. If the conditions weren't met, and say, for example, the supplier was only required to deliver the goods to their own premises or to a carrier other than ship or aircraft operator named by the buyer, then it would be the buyer who would be the exporter under those conditions. So that's FCA. Then there's something called CPT, carriage paid to, and it's quite similar to FCA, but the key difference is that the seller will also cover the delivery costs. Now, the GST ruling, the ATO says that the supplier will be the exporter, and the reason they give is that the supplier is responsible for contracting with a carrier to transport the goods to a named overseas destination. Next, there's CIP, which is carriage and insurance paid to. 
broadly the same as CPT. The difference here is that the seller also pays for insuring the goods. And again, it's the supplier, for much the same reason, the supplier is the entity that's considered to be the exporter in that scenario. So next, perhaps we'll, we'll move on to FOB, free on board. Now, in that scenario, the seller assumes the costs and risks up until the goods have been delivered on board a ship. And the seller is the party that will sort out the export clearance. Now, again, the, the ATO says the supplier is the exporter, and that's because they're responsible for delivering the goods on board the ship on board a a ship that has been engaged to carry them to an overseas destination. Simon? Yes? Does FOB usually only apply to sea voyages, or is the term also used for rail or air transport? You're absolutely right that it only applies to sea voyages. So a number of these only apply to sea voyages. FOB is, is one of them and others can apply to any mode of transport. So, in fact, the next two also apply only to to sea voyages. So we've covered FOB, free on board. Then there's CFR, which is cost and freight. And that's similar to FOB, but the key difference is that under CFR, the seller also pays the cost of bringing the goods to the port. Now, from a GST perspective, that doesn't really change much. It's still the supplier that is considered to be the exporter because the seller is required to contract at their own expense for the carriage of the goods to the named overseas destination. And then finally in this group, you have CIF, cost insurance and freight, and As the name suggests, the the key difference between that and CFR is the insurance portion, that the seller has to cover also the insurance costs. They only need to pay for a, a minimum amount of insurance, and so the buyer may choose to purchase additional insurance, but the seller is still responsible for at least meeting that minimum level. In this case, the supplier, once again, is the exporter. The buyer is considered to be the exporter, is under EXW, ex-works terms. In that situation, it's the seller that makes sure that the buyer can access the goods, for example, from their warehouse. But once the buyer has access to those goods, at that point in time, the buyer assumes all the costs and the risks, and they're responsible for taking the goods from that location, for example, the warehouse, and arranging for them to be loaded onto the ship and exported. So as I said, in that scenario, the ATO considers that it's the buyer that's the exporter. They say that where a supplier is only responsible for delivery of the goods at a place inside Australia and to a person in Australia, who or that is not a ship or airline operator, the supplier is not considered to be the exporter. This is the case under an ex-works contract of sale where the supplier is only required to deliver the goods either at the supplier's own premises or to a carrier other than a ship or aircraft operator named by the buyer. Ex-works is the most common scenario where it will 
be considered that the buyer is the exporter. There's also DDP, delivery duty paid, which is quite a common one. And under that scenario, the seller covers the costs and risks of transporting the goods to the agreed address. It's also responsible for making sure that they're ready for unloading. And the seller is responsible for the export and, and import responsibilities. So as you would expect, the supplier is the exporter in that scenario. And that's because they're responsible for contracting with the carrier to transport the goods to a named overseas destination. Then there's a DAP, another quite common one, delivered at place. And there the, the seller delivers the goods to an agreed address ready to be unloaded. At this point, the risks transfer from the seller to the buyer and the seller organises customs clearance while the buyer sorts import clearance. Now, I couldn't actually find this explicitly mentioned in the GST ruling, but based on the criteria that the ruling outlines, my understanding is that it would uh, generally be the supplier that's the exporter. Under DAP? Under DAP, yeah. And then just one very last one, FAS, which is free alongside ship. And as the name suggests, that's one that only applies to shipping. This incoterm, the seller assumes all costs and risks until the goods have been delivered to the ship. And then the buyer takes over the risks and takes care of the export and import clearance. In the ATO's view, they say that the supplier is the exporter provided, just like with FCA, free carrier, provided that, one, the named place of delivery is an international port or airport, and two, the carrier to whom the goods are delivered is the operator of a ship or aircraft. So that means FAS would also apply to air travel then, wouldn't it? The rulings, yes, lists airport as a, or aircraft, that's true. But then the meaning of the term only refers to, to, to a ship. Yes. Maybe they mean an airship. Maybe. No, you could include an airship. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You've, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, and if those conditions are, aren't met, then it's yeah, the buyer that's the, the exporter. So I think that's pretty much covers Inco terms, or at least uh, we're, we're approaching the limits of my understanding. Welcome back. So with most incoterms, the seller is the exporter. In the next episode, episode 140, Simon Dorovich will look at how the supply of a service could be connected with the indirect tax zone. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>